0: My guest today is one of the founding members of a Facebook group that started after my article on young people in horticulture came out in Organic Gardening Magazine. The site is called Emergent, a group of growing professionals. We're going to talk about a lot of things, new plants, new people, and also the problem of wanting to grow native plants, but also being a gardener who wants to grow many other plants. Angela Treadwell Palmer has a Bachelor of Science degree in ornamental horticulture and landscape design from the University of Delaware. She has worked in almost every aspect of gardening, garden design, and plant promotion, especially introducing Americans to native plants. She is the director of the annual Native Plants in the Landscape Conference held at Millersville University almost each June, Uh, And you say that that keeps you grounded in ecology, current environmental issues, and feeds your soul each year with your adoration for U.S. native plants. But, Angela, you also have another job. (laughs) Uh, Yes. So, hello, and go right ahead. Tell me about, well, tell me about you, and then tell me about, I was going to say plant weenie.
1: (laughs) Uh, I got that name when I was working at Connor Pyle. Uh, I think it was my first email address. And you know, it was back then when you weren't using your name, you use some funky moniker and one of the production guys had always called me plant weenie. So it just stuck. <laughs> and I've said my Twitter name, and you know, everyone laughs at it, but people remember it. So, and I am a total plant weenie. I'm sitting in my dining room, which actually is sort of like a sunroom, surrounded by agaves and aloes and dickias and things I really shouldn't have, <laughs> and haven't gone outside yet because the weather's been so freaky. But um, yeah, so my paid job is introducing new plants, and that's why I say Millersville keeps me grounded because. I'm sort of uh, schizophrenic and conflicted because I love native plants and I love landscaping for wildlife and just, uh, you know, I'm such a green person and my business introduces cultivars. Now, we're incredibly conscious about it and would never even take on a genus that we might think would be invasive. but you know, there's some, there's still a bit of a conflict with introducing cultivars and then loving native plants and, 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 you know, naturalistic gardening. So I I think having both of them allows me to feed both sides, you know, the plant fashion and then the, you know, saving the earth side of my personality.
0: Well, this uh, question that you've raised is something that's only haunted me for about 30 years, (laughs) and you're saying cultivars, which are cultivated varieties of selections made of native plants, I am saying, but also you introduce plants that are exotic, plants from different parts of the world as well.
1: Yes, yes. Hopefully not invasive. We're real conscious about that, but um, yeah, we... I love native plants, but I also love gardening so there there's the conflict. Uh, a garden completely full of native plants probably isn't going to feed my gardening bug as, as much as it should. Uh, so I like lots of colors i i you know I have just about every echinacea in my garden because of what we do, but I also have all the species, and it's taught me a lot about where they come from and what they like and why some of them might not be happy where people plant them. So it's been quite an educational experience, but that, I don't think most gardeners would have gone to that extreme. But I, I, you know, I want to have all the native species where these come from. And I think with the Native Plants Conference, our hope is when you teach people about um, some of the fancier cultivars of native plants that might be a little bit more attractive then a lot of them get this bug where they want to see where they came from so then they start collecting the species and then you know they're much better for the the wildlife in their area and it's happened to quite a few you know people who come to the native plants conference over and over again they're they're looking for the parents of all these cultivars to have in their garden but they still you know that's what got them hooked was a red-leaved lobelia instead of the plain green leaf lobelia but then they went back and and got the green one as well because they wanted to see where the plant had originated from so i think that's an interesting phenomenon that sort of sort of happened to me as well in gardening
0: well and and you're reminding me of what happens when you have a green plant and you discover that there's a red one then you want to find out all the red ones that you can possibly find or that's it's a way of getting introduced to the cultivars too but as you know the controversy if there is controversy and there there is, is the, the possibility that the selections or the cultivars of the native plants might be more vigorous than the original species and could push them out of the wild or escape. And I know you're mindful of this, and it's a problem that I struggle with all the time. And when I write about native plants and, and promote them, then the question gets, well, then how come you can have exotic plants and it is the answer we're gardeners but it's I wish we had a better answer
1: yeah well I think you know some parts of me feel that the, the cultivars of, of native plants are a little bit more dangerous than the, the harmless exotic plants not the, the invasive ones of course but some of them just don't go anywhere they sit there they look prettier in our gardens you know you don't see azaleas and and rhododendrons popping up in the wild that are coming from japan but if you breed a native plant to be stronger that that seems to be where the conflict is that it it might be strong enough that it will be red-leaved and go out in the wild and take over where the green-leaved plants were now you never know that that red-leaved plant didn't occur in nature because a lot of these selections are just open pollinated, Mm -hmm. which means they put a bunch of different colors and species together and they let them go at it, you know, garden sex at its best. And it it does happen in the wild, but I think we are, you know, just like athletes, we're breeding bigger and better and stronger and and then they sort of take over and push the weak people out. So it's something to be thinking about, for sure.
0: You're not helping me.
1: (laughs) I I told you I'm friends. Yeah, (laughs) It's tough. It really is. I think you just have to be really mindful and and watch. You know, echinacea are fairly harmless because they're not very long-lived. But And I think that the colors that have come out and the doubles that have come out are somewhere out there in the wild. We may not be seeing them because they're in the far reaches where people aren't hiking to, but... I mean, in the botanical literature, there have been orange cultivars of coneflowers. That's how the whole craze started. With Dr. Alt at the Chicago Botanic Garden, was he read a, a, you know some old literature that that showed that um, yellow coneflowers and pink coneflowers grew in such close proximity that they had actually made an orange one in the wild. So. You know, I, I, it's a really tough question, something we struggle with with the Native Plants Conference. I think having 15 coneflowers, no matter what they are in your garden, is better than having, you know, pakistandra as a ground cover, for sure, because it mm-hmm. attracts pollinators. And that's something that people are starting to realize, you know, something's better than nothing. And some people have nothing. Most people have nothing. So <sighs>
0: Well, you know, you're talking about the echinacea, and uh, when we were communicating back and forth, you mentioned that uh, you might be able to help people figure out how to get these plants to live more than one season. (laughs) Because a lot of them don't. Right, right.
1: Well, I I think it depends on the the breeding stock, but I know the ones, at least the ones that that we've introduced and... um, Lots that I've grown from other breeders are doing quite well. And this is my third garden that I've had them in. And they come back year after year. And the thing to remember is whenever it's orange or yellow or red, that it's got Echinacea paradoxa in it, which comes from the Ozarks and grows in rock outcroppings. So it needs to be completely well-drained in wintertime. And I think that's where we kill them. There's two things, too much mulch, too much leaf litter... And then um, cutting off the stems, if you deadhead the flowers, they're like straws. And those straws suck all the moisture into the crown of the plant. And if you just leave the flower heads on all winter and let the birds devour them and cut them back in the spring, you're much better off. Because you don't want the crown of that plant to be wet at all because in its native habitat, it's dry. Mm. And so that's how we often kill them. I think some of the breeding stock out there is a little bit weak. And you can see when you go to growers in the spring that, you know, when the plants are overwintering in the in the poly houses and in their one-gallon pots and you walk the crops, some of them are much more vigorous and coming back. So I think, you know, there is a problem with some of the breeding stock out there, but if you get a hold of a good one that's nice and vigorous, like hot papaya or milkshake, those are going to be long-lived perennials, as long as you don't let piles of leaves you know, crown up around the stem and, and make sure that the mulch isn't piled up. If you have somebody mulching your garden, I think those are really important. It's not hardiness, for sure, because in the Ozarks, it gets pretty dang cold. It's, it, and they live in Canada, so it's not that. It's more about the roots and, and winter wetness. So,
0: Well, the double echinacea, do, the, do those actually make seed at all?
1: They do make seed, it's just not as many seeds. So if you have traditional purple cone flowers and then one of the doubles in your garden, the butterflies and the, the finches are going to visit both of them, but they always will prefer the singles because there's more seeds. So, you know, if you pull away those little double tufty flowers, you find the seeds down inside, but it, it's not as many, and I think... Um, you know, if you didn't have anything else, it would be okay. But I, if you're going to plant a bunch of coneflowers, always make sure you have some singles there to, to keep the birds happy.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you introduced new plants. Uh, you were the director of new products for Conard Pyle. You mentioned the company, and also uh, Chicago Botanic Garden and the Morton Arboretum. They got together to do their plant introduction program for chicagoland grows and that's how we that's where all this stuff started <laughs>
1: with these... that's my paying the coneflower queen yes.
0: <laughs> you're the plant weenie and the coneflower queen Yes. that's yes. busy stuff it but <laughs> but now you are the founder of plants nouveau llc yes
1: and we do sort of the same you know i just got this um uh, breeders are, are wonderful quirky people and I, I love working with them I and mean, we have some crazy guys we work with and, and ladies um but they're fun they're wonderful people they're like family and it was such a great experience coming out of college and being thrown into new plants at Connor Pyle I mean, my, the first breeder I worked with was Bill Radler,
0: mm-hmm. He's,
1: who invented the knockout rose. And I named the knockout rose. Really? So, yeah, it was me and Susie McCoy from Garden Media Group. We were drinking wine and came up with the name. So, you know, that's sort of how it works. But the, these guys have, um, the breeders have wonderful vision and patience I mean, it took Bill Radler 25 years to come up with Knockout. And I'm working with an a intersectional peony breeder right now who's been working on it just as long and hasn't yet had a successful introduction. So, you know, we have some in the pipeline that are coming, but the patience, mm. I have that kind of patience. So it's it's such a great group of people to work with. And, you know, it's very fashionable, the new plant world. So there was sort of a bug that got me. I love going out and selecting plants. Going to a field of 50,000 plants and helping the breeder to select five is a real fun thing to do. Getting to travel all over the world. So after I did it at Connor Pile, I went back to being a landscape designer and got, frankly got bored with the people I was working with. <laughs> I was offered the job in Chicago, and you know what a great place to work. I got to work at the Chicago Botanic Garden and work with... The breeders there and the breeders at the Morton Arboretum and all the nursery people in that area were also contributing plants to the program. So that was a great, a great thing. And then, you know, I just sort of took everything I learned and made it all about being one big family and people trusting you. Because, as you know, in, in this horticulture world, there's there's been some slimy stuff that's gone on with Uh, people not being paid for their inventions and so just, you know, really wanting to do it right, really wanting to not even look at anything that was going to harm the environment and, you know, making sure that the plants were actually good when they came out on the market Mm. which, I it's a huge controversy. So, you know, we take pride in knowing that we're living with these plants every day and they're in our gardens and the trial gardens for the company and that they're being sent out to botanic gardens and garden writers all over the country to try and get some feedback on the stuff and not just pumping this stuff out like it's, I don't know what. So that's how Plants Uvo got started was there were some breeders from the Netherlands who had been hurt by uh, some of the large introduction companies and were looking for somebody in America that they could trust. Hmm. And they found me through a friend of mine who is Dutch, and that's how it all began in 2005, and it's just sort of blossomed from there. But, uh, you know, it really is a big family.
0: I'm speaking with Angela Treadwell Palmer, who is the founder of Plants Nouveau LLC, a company based in Charleston, South Carolina, that specializes in introducing plants from around the world and a lot of native plants to the market. Do you ever... Are you ever approached by somebody who just has something weird in their garden who isn't really a breeder and says, hey, I've got a weird plant. What's, is this of interest?
1: Oh, once a week, for sure. <laughs> and it's, it's hard. Some of them are so, you know, it, I don't even know how, well, I know how people find us. My husband is an internet marketing guru, so our website makes us look like we're an enormous company, which is great. And people find us because we're always ranked really high when you type in new plants. But one guy, he sent me, you know, a clover that was variegated in his lawn, and it just had a little <laughs> bit of a red pigment to it, and he was so excited about it. And I I said to my part, my business partner, Linda, I said, you know, I don't even know what to tell this guy, because nothing's going to make him happy. <laughs> so, no. So, yeah, we get stuff like that a lot, or it's, it's something that they think is so great, and then... You know, it's total collector's item, so we can't really make any money off of it because we might sell 500. And it happens a lot. People find plants all the time. And I think it's fun. That's what's fun is so when you get that email saying, you know, and more than once from different people around the country, the title has been, let's make some money together. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> so <seen> That's fascinating.
0: <laughs> has it ever happened? Have you ever had an accidental success story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We have quite a few breeders that are just, you know, one plant. And I think that's, uh, you know, those people are fun. and They're so excited and often way more intense about their plant, you know, really worried about it. And and that's the other thing is we don't mind, because we're a small company, if they're going to bug us every day about how it is. Some of the big companies just don't want you to talk to them. They want you to give them their plant, your plant, and just wait for them to tell you how it's doing. We, I have people who email me once every other week saying, how's it going, how's it going, what mm. are you, and you know, it, it's their baby.
0: So have you put a plant into tissue culture, uh, that's done in, in the Netherlands with a partner there?
1: We have labs uh, throughout the world. There's one in Poland, one in the Netherlands, one in South Africa, and then we work with some in the US, like all, all of our tropicals are done in Florida. At a lab down there, but then we have we have a couple labs. It depends on the plant. We try to go to whoever is best for that product.
0: Mm. So I know that you and I are both interested in the future, <laughs> and yeah. and young people, yeah. and uh, and the emergence. And it's been very exciting what's happened in a very short time with connecting, finding, and connecting young people in horticulture, and. Trying to figure out ways that we can help them, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, you know, I'm uh, just a little bit older than the group requires, so I'm on the top end of the group. One of the uh, the founders, that you're know, part of our founding group, calls me the grandma of the group, which is great. But you know, I'm I'm 45, so <laughs> I <laughs> a grandma not yet. But of these kids that are in their 20s, for sure. And I think it's so exciting, instead of being bitter like I should be because there was nothing to help me when I was coming up, I want them to have people to help them. I was sort of pushed out of the way by the old nurserymen and the old curmudgeons who ran these companies and never really allowed to flourish. Thankfully, I worked for Connor Pyle, which was a bit more open environment, Uh, but people had a hard time my age. I'm a Gen X all the way, and there are lots of folks in my graduating class who got out of the industry because they couldn't go anywhere. There were no you know, moving up in the company opportunities back then because the baby boomers were staying in their positions for a really long time. And I think the opportunities that are out there now are incredible. And I love it when uh, we can post jobs on there. I mean, there's so many jobs that are so cool that people never hear about like um, Ray Mims from the U.S. Botanic Garden sent an email out with some amazing supervisory jobs at the U.S. Botanic Garden which don't come up very often I said you know we need to get these on the emergent site so that you've got this whole crop of people here that are looking for work or looking to advance and you know the internship opportunities and just people knowing what's possible how can you actually make money in this industry where am I going to be happy there's how many different climates just in the U S that every garden has a different plant palette. And you know I think it's very exciting and I'm happy to be a part of it, even as the, the grandmama. But, um, you know, I do wish there was something like that when I was coming up the ranks, cause I felt so lost and like, you know, my job was not real. And I feel like that's changed with this group. So that's- wow,
0: it's interesting that you're talking about opportunities. I don't, I don't see them and maybe we'll find them. But uh, as you're talking about the young people and talking about opportunities, do you have any thoughts on the future of the industry, the future of gardening? I know this is a big question, but since you Mm -hmm. are involved with Millersville, um, when people go to Millersville, that's the choir, (laughs) and you're preaching to them. How do we reach out to the people who really don't understand or appreciate or who are fed this stuff from the companies about get it over in no time and this whole instant thing there's a commercial I saw on TV and the question from the homeowner to the helper at the nursery was can this how long will this take is it can I can I do it quickly and they say yes of course it's like 12 vertical gardens but uh that was too many questions
1: (laughs) yeah well you know the whole easy thing bothers me a lot because um It's not easy, but, you know, if you look at... And I have to go back to food. We keep going back to food, and food has been so successful, and people are willing to put money and time into cooking for themselves now that they weren't, you know... My parents' generation, everything came out of a box because it was fashionable then. Now it's fashionable to go to the farmer's market, get your own vegetables, buy your $8 salt, and, you know, come home and cook your meal. Why can't we you know, infuse that into gardening and not make it so easy. It's not easy to cook. It's hard. There's lots of ingredients. It takes more time. It's much easier to go to McDonald's. (laughs) So we're trying to market gardening as if it's going to McDonald's. And I think gardening is way more complicated, and there are so many more variables than there are in cooking that we need to embrace what the food industry has done and sort of have a slow gardening movement I know we've talked about this on the emergent group but it's not easy no matter what the tag says and Margaret Roach just wrote that in her latest book it was like you know and she learned that that it's not easy it's not fast and it's not carefree or something was the quote that she had and I think that's I think they've done way too much uh, pushing that, gardening is easy you just put it in a pot give it some you know fertilizer and and you're done that has never happened for me and i know what i'm doing so what happens to consumers is the scary thing and i think that's that's a big part of the problem
0: and the and the whole idea that it's that maybe we don't want it over in no time and you're saying gardening isn't easy but uh what would we say to somebody playing golf or or playing tennis? It's not easy either, but Definitely
1: it's not easy, but they're willing to put the time in.
0: yeah, it's a recreation
1: exactly. So you know, look at the people who I live in boat country here on the you know near the water in, in Massachusetts, and people spend half an hour every morning fixing their boat before they even get on it to go out in the water and and it means nothing to them. but you tell them, taken half an hour and deadhead their plants and they'd think you were crazy <laughs> so I think I'm hoping that the botanic gardens and the public gardens and things like you know I'm super excited about the high line and how many visitors it gets and hoping that they can educate people that you know this just doesn't happen we work at this and this is what you can have and how does it make you feel to walk through this space and enjoy it and wouldn't you like to have this in your yard or if you don't have a yard come back here often and see how things change and progress. And I think Longwood's new campaign is focusing on that. They have a new master plan and a new whole scheme going on with their marketing that talks about, you know, come to Longwood for, the, for that retreat and we'll teach you how to do it, you know, at your own home. And that you get so much benefit from being with the plants, touching the soil, all of that stuff. And and I think it's exciting that they're actually telling people that, you know, fertilizer's bad and the food has been ruined and all these things we've been preaching and people think we're nuts. Mm-hmm. So I think, I feel like there's hope, but I'm a, a perpetual dreamer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've been speaking with Angela Treadwell Palmer. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks. You're welcome.
0: Wow, it's invigorating to talk to someone who is... Still interested in horticulture, and gardens, and plants, and excited, and makes me excited. And I hope you can join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt. And we'll have an interesting guest, or maybe I'll just be talking to you myself. See you then.